Hey, hey, this is Teresa Matsura, and you're listening to Uncanny Japan. Have you ever strolled through a Japanese graveyard? I remember in university in the States one day when I was driving some Japanese exchange students somewhere or other, and we passed a cemetery. One of them commented that American graveyards weren't creepy at all. They were like nice parks where you could sit and have an obento with a friend. I asked what Japanese graveyards were like, and he said, oh, they're really scary. As you can imagine, my interest was piqued. If you've never seen one, let me see if I can describe it to you. In general, they're the absolute opposite of sprawling. They aren't acres of lush green rolling hills dotted with equidistant markers and shade trees keeping in mind how valuable and scarce land is in Japan. Cemeteries have their gravestones usually built quite close together, sometimes into mountainsides, and the grave markers themselves are a little more complicated. A hakaishi, or tombstone, marks the entire family's plot. Practically everyone is cremated, so one's ashes and quite a bit of the bones are placed inside a fancy urn and then set inside a hollow part of the stone or marble marker. The main hakaishi is big and rectangular, and usually some shade of gray. It has the family's last name carved on the front and sets atop or near several other blocks, where there's a place for incense to be burned, water or sake to be poured and left for the ancestors to sip, and vases for flowers or greenery for them to enjoy. They're neat and clean, and sometimes a little festive. It's not uncommon to find gifts of snacks, food, juice, and sake, and of course all the pretty flowers decorating a grave. To me, they're not so scary. Oh, and there's also this kind of holder by the graves. It keeps these long, skinny pieces of wood called sotoba. Sotoba is a deep subject in and of itself, but just know that on them is written the Buddhist name for the deceased, among a couple other things. There can be one or several, and this is what my friend was talking about when he said Japanese cemeteries were scary. He said if you go at night, they tend to rattle around suddenly for no reason. Also, all those blocks of stone mean that you can't see what's hiding around you. His words, not mine. Anyway, this episode isn't going to be about Japanese cemeteries or funerals. Although I've been to a few, and I could do a show on them if you'd like. Today, though, I'm going to talk about a concept I never even considered until I moved to Japan. In, let's say, North America, you buy a plot of land, you pay for it, and there you rest forever and ever after you die. In Japan... Not so much. Remember what I said about scarcity in land? Well, here, aside from the absolutely obscene cost of a funeral itself, you or your family have to pay a temple yearly to upkeep the grave. It's like rent. So what happens when, for some reason or another, there is no one left to keep up these payments, or no one to continue the various memorial services that should be held at certain times? Or, say, what happens if someone dies and they can't be identified? Like a large-scale natural disaster, fire, floods, earthquakes. 
or even suicides where the person's identity is unknown. Well, that's what's called a muin botoke, or deceased with no connections to the living. This is actually a really fascinating topic. Keep listening. Would you like to explore the stranger, more obscure corners of Japanese culture? Dig a little deeper into superstitions, curious customs, and all those mysterious creatures that inhabit the land? If so, then this is the podcast for you. Uncanny Japan is where I, author Teresa Matsura, share all the fascinating tidbits I unearth while doing research for my writing. From the bizarre to the ghastly and everything in between. I hope you enjoy the show. Hey, hey, how are you? In big, hairy toe news. I know, I know. I just love it. It's become a thing. Mark from the Folklore Podcast reached out and let me know about a wonderfully disturbing tale that is very much similar to Caitlin's story. Remember Caitlin's folktale, which was told to her by her grandmother in Alabama? Well, guess what? Let me read you a part of Mark's message because it made me laugh. I thought you might like to know that the Who's Got My Hairy Toe nursery story has been used to abuse and frighten young children in the UK for many years. I certainly remember it from a long time ago personally. A children's book version came out in 2001 as well. I followed the link and indeed Who Took My Hairy Toe is a children's book that I wish I could have read to my son back in the day. Very awesome. Thank you, Mark, for letting us know. One more thing, Sound Man Rich Pav and my other show, the Uncanny Robot Podcast, was selected to be a part of the New Jersey Web Fest. It's an award thingy, and they do podcasts too, which is exciting. We're waiting for them to announce the categories. Speaking of Uncanny Robot Podcast, we just released our latest episode, Asteroid Annie and the Mission of the Marsh. It's got space heroines, dangerous tentacled aliens, marsh turtles, and a tizzle blast. It took four months to complete, and I think it's pretty hilarious myself. Just in case I never mentioned it, each episode is a standalone story or commentary about one of the stories. So you can start wherever you want, and you won't be confused. Well, you might be confused, but in an exciting and thrilling way. Asteroid Annie in the Mission of the Marsh is only about 20 minutes long, and it's a hoot. We'll be putting up a commentary soon. Check it out. Okay, let me tell you about the unconnected dead, or Muin Botoke. First, let's take apart the word. Mu means nothing, not, or without. And N means affinity, connection, or relation. So no connection, without relations, you get the idea. Botoke is interesting because it's actually hotoke, a word used for the Buddha or enlightened one. But it has also come to mean a dead person or a dead body, very often with the polite suffix san or sama, hotoke-sama. So muen botoke is someone who has passed away and they have no, shall we say, earthly connections. 
This could be a person who never had children themselves, or maybe there aren't any grandchildren to keep up the payments or to do the proper ceremonies for the grave. Maybe the younger generation just moved away. Or like I mentioned earlier, it could just be an unidentified body. Who's going to pay for that gravestone and that plot rental? Who's going to offer the prayers? Here's what is often done. Remember I explained what a Japanese cemetery looks like. Well, next time you're in one, or even go online and look if you'd like, almost always you can find a place off to the side or the back of the graveyard where is stacked a bunch of very old stones. Personally, I really like these. When I come across any cemetery, I make a point to go and look at them. If my mother-in-law knew this, she'd have a heart attack. Those are spirits who have no one taking care of them, she might say. They're disgruntled or sad or angry, she also might say. And they will very likely attach to you and do bad things. Yep, I can hear that too. But from an aesthetic point of view, those stones usually are so old and weathered, covered in moss, leaning this way or that. They're quite beautiful. But alas, they are muin botoke. The temple has performed the right rituals to soothe the souls and gathered them up and set them aside to make room for the new people, or dead people, or potokes. They're just stacked there. I'll put up some photos on the Uncanny Japan website if you'd like to see. But there's a question that's begging to be asked. So the monks move the stones aside, but what happens to the urns, the ashes, and the bones? Actually, I don't know. At least in most cases, I don't know. But I do know that I heard about this problem and a brilliant solution years and years ago, and I always wanted to talk about it. It's been on my episode back burner list for a long time, but I jotted the information to look into on a post-it note or in some journal or something, and I completely lost it. Thank you, search engine. I found it again. There is a temple in Osaka called Ishinji, One Heart Temple. It's quite modern in certain ways. And they have a creative way to approach solving this issue. Real quick, the temple came about in 1185 when Honen, the founder of the Jodo sect of Buddhism, built a little hut there so he could practice something called Nisokan, which is basically meditating on the setting sun. Even the emperor at the time would visit this nice spot to gaze out at the sun as it set and practice Nisokan. Anyway, Ishinji grew and was lovely and popular, so lovely and popular, in fact, that it began to collect a bunch of urns with the cremated remains of people inside. How many is a bunch? Well, 50,000, more or less. So many that there was no place to put them. In 1887, the head priest commissioned sculptures to mix these bones and ashes with resin and cast them into a giant Buddha, which they did. There were six statues eventually completed, and then World War II happened, and then the Osaka fire raids destroyed everything, the entire temple complex and all the statues. But after the war, it was rebuilt and continues this interesting practice of taking Muin Botoke and making a Buddhist statue out of them. These days, they make one every ten years. 
and you don't have to be alone in the world to donate your remains either. If you'd like, you'd give them to the temple and they'll add you to the pile. Vat? That doesn't sound right. Anyway, they do say that once you donate, you can't get them back because they're already in the process of making the statue. They also state that they will accept your dead self no matter what your religious affiliation was in life, which is very nice and inclusive. I like that. If you go to Ishinji, you can find the statues made thus far in a pair of buildings on the temple grounds called Nokotsudo and Okotsubutsudo. Okotsubutsu is a word that literally means bone Buddha. It's believed that the first Buddha statue made from human remains was a four-meter-tall jizo that dates back to the 1700s. It's said to be made by the priest Shingon, who crushed up a bunch of bones, mixed them with clay, and started sculpting. It's also said to still be standing at the temple, a temple called Dainji in Kanazawa. Remember how it took 50,000 human remains to make the first statue? Well, now they're using more. Ten years of donations can get you a lot. For example, the seventh statue that was made after the original six had been destroyed was completed in 1948, and it consists of 220,000 people, which is like extra sad because of course I'm assuming a lot of those were killed in the war not someone voluntarily donating their ashes. In 1957, however, only 160,000 people were used. And so it goes. I visited the temple's website, and I noticed an announcement dated January 1st, 2021. And maybe this is due to COVID-19, again making it extra sad. But because the number of urns donated is so great recently, they will only accept small ones now with a diameter of 9 centimeters or less and a height of 11 centimeters or less. And my favorite part of the announcement was the last line. Ichirei nitsuki, ichitsubo no mi. One spirit per urn. So don't go doubling up there. Oh, and by donate, I mean there is a fee. It's between 20,000 yen and 50,000 yen, which when you compare to the outrageous cost of funerals here, is nothing at all. I find it wonderful and heartening that Japanese are so good at paying respect to their ancestors. I know the generations are changing, but I personally know so many people who offer incense and prayers to their family altars every morning. Little things like if you receive a gift from someone, you might set it on the altar so the ancestors can enjoy it first. My father-in-law used to buy lottery tickets and he would place them on the altar for any extra good luck juice that they might offer. Visiting graves at certain times of the year, if not more often, is also very common too. Like I keep saying, funerals and acquiring a grave in Japan is the most expensive in the world. So of course not everyone can afford that. It's not super rare to hear of people leaving the urns of their loved ones on trains, in lockers or just on temple grounds, because of the fees they can't afford. This is why I really dig what Ishinji is doing. If a family offers their loved one's cremated remains to be made into one of these large Buddhas, then it's enshrining them, giving the surviving family a place to come to pray, and getting the assurance that they'll be taken care of by the temple through the ages. 
and not hauled off to the side of a cemetery and stacked up and forgotten. That's all for today. I'll let you go. I don't do it all the time, but I should. I want to thank Richard, my sound tech and website guy. He's still available if you need a podcast editor or sound engineer and all the other rigmarole that comes with launching a podcast. He can do it all, believe me. He also does the Japan Distilled podcast, which is a fascinating show about all those delicious Japanese alcoholic beverages, their history, how they're made. They just launched their own Patreon page. If you'd like to check that out, you can just Google Japan Distilled Podcast Patreon. It'll pop right up. Speaking of Richard, he reminded me to mention the transcripts of the show are up on the Uncanny Japan website, all the way back to episode 50. We'll be putting up earlier shows a little at a time. He's also been spending a lot of hours making sure the subtitles on the YouTube videos aren't auto-generated and that they actually match what I'm saying. So you can look at that too if you'd like. Thank you everyone for listening. Thank you patrons for being the best. And please stay safe and well. And I'll talk to you in two weeks. Bye-bye.